0: Well, here's a a question for us as we uh, look at this passage today. Um, What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? Um, We've seen, haven't we, John's uh, written this book. He he said in in, in chapter 20, uh, verses 30 to 31, um, he's written it so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. In his name. So so he says he's come to bring us life. And, And in verse 35 of today's passage, Jesus makes this astonishing claim when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But what does he mean by life? What should we expect from Jesus? What should we look to Jesus for? And, and, you know, we live, don't we, in a very materialistic world here, here in the West. You know, a world that has got very little interest in the eternal, a world that gives very little thought, actually, to the eternal, but is massively taken up with the material and with the temporal, with the, with the here and now. And that preoccupation with the temporal and the material, I I think it's not simply creeping into the church as well, I think it's gone viral in the church. As as Christians increasingly have an expectation of Jesus that he has come to meet our temporal or our material needs or, or expectations. You know, be that for our health or for our relationships or for our career potential or for our lifestyle or for our financial security or or whatever it might be. In other words, that Jesus has kind of come in order to help us live our best life now, as one famous uh, book puts it. Or or if not that exactly, then at least to give us a materially comfortable life now. Well, here in chapter 6, I think Jesus is going to challenge that thinking as he spells out what he means by life. In him. Um, if you've been around the last, last few weeks, you'll have seen chapter 5. Jesus has claimed to be God's divine Son, who has come to do his Father's work, uh, which is um, uh, to come with all the authority of God, to give life from God, and to bring judgment from God. And he's given proof of who he is and and what he's come to do by doing what what only God can do. He healed the man by the pool at the beginning of the chapter as a sign to back up his claim. And, And then, as we saw last week, he presents these kind of three sort of significant blocks of evidence that point to his person and his work so that those who reject him would be without excuse. And now as we come to chapter 6, we'll see that Jesus starts to spell out the kind of life that he's come to bring. And it's a kind of life that I think will challenge any simply materialistic or temporal understandings of what that might be. Uh, As we see that the kind of life that we should be looking to Jesus for, and the only kind of life actually, that truly satisfies. I think that's what we'll see in this passage. But look, before we get to the passage, we just need to have a quick uh, uh, um, uh, look at the, the background. And, and the background to this passage is in the Old Testament and, and in the book of Exodus, where, if you remember, uh, God rescued his, his people from their slavery to the Egyptians. He, he led them out of Egypt uh, into the land that he promised to their forefathers. Uh, in other words, the, the events of the Exodus told God's people that God was a rescuing God, And and, and God gave them certain things, didn't he, which were to remind them of of that fact. So he instituted the Passover meal, for example, which they were to celebrate, uh, you remember, every year to make sure that they remembered his rescue of them. Uh, And then a bit later on, he provided them, didn't he, with manna in the desert. And manna, of course, was a kind of a bread that that God provided for them. He, He miraculously fed them every day. With, with bread from heaven and, and, and in fact uh, again that was a daily reminder that he'd rescued them but it was also a daily test for them wasn't it of their dependence upon him if you remember they were only to gather what they needed for, for each day as a, as a kind of test to see um, if they would live in daily dependence on this rescuing God and so obey what he said but not only had God rescued Israel But having rescued them, he'd promised them another rescuer to come. Another prophet like Moses, who who would lead them as Moses had led them. Um, So uh, there's this in Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, God had told Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded you. And so now, as we come to the New Testament, and we see today's passage here in John 6, well, what we're going to see is that Jesus is that one who was promised. Um, Do you remember last week, um, uh, chapter 5, verse 46? Jesus saying to his accusers, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. You remember that? Well, what we'll see here in John 6 is that these events they echo the events of the exodus, and they point us to the fact that Jesus is the one about whom Moses was writing. So that's where we're going. Two headings. First of all, the signs, the the signs that tell us who Jesus is, and then the explanation that tells us the kind of life that he brings. So have a look, first of all, uh, kind of verses 1 to 21. This is where we see the signs, the signs that tell us who Jesus is. And you'll see the scene gets set in in verses 1 to 4. Have a look. Uh, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So, So there's the setting, and notice that it's Passover time. Um, so it's, it's that time of the year when, when Israel is, is especially focused on remembering the exodus uh, from Egypt, that, that God is a rescuing God and he's the God who fed them in the desert. And it's also a time when their expectations of this other rescuer to come are kind of at their highest. So at this very significant time of Passover, what does Jesus do he miraculously feeds his people. And, and we can see in, in John's account of that, can't we, in verses 5 to 15. Jesus has crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee for kind of some rest, some privacy. Um, but the signs that he's been doing have caused his, kind of his reputation to precede him, if you like. So this vast crowd sort of get wind of his whereabouts uh, and they're flocking towards him. And so Jesus says to Philip, one of his disciples, verse 5, where are we going to buy bread so that these people can eat? And and notice verse 6, that he said this to test him. In other words, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. So so just like the manna in the desert, if you like, was a test for his Old Testament people, so this is a test for his New Testament people. In fact, one specific uh, New Testament disciple, Philip. And and Philip says, verse 7, well, you know, even with 200 denarii, that's kind of eight months wages. You're not going to give this lot more than a bite each, (laughs) at which point, verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, he pipes up and says, well, there's this young lad over here, and he's got five barley loaves and and two fish, but that's not going to go very far. And he's he's quite right, isn't he? When when he says five loaves and two fish, don't think like five of those super inflated tiger loaves that you get in Tesco's kind of, you know, pumped up with air and stuff. Um, Don't don't, don't think that. And, And a couple of large sides of tuna from the fish counter or something like that. This is, you know, think more like five little finger rolls and a couple of pickled sardines or something like that. This is a boy's packed lunch, you know, and, and, and of course, of course, it's laughable to think that you can feed a multitude of people on a boy's sandwich box. But Jesus isn't laughing, is he? He says, verse 10, have the people sit down. And and they did, and and the men alone who sat down, verse 10, numbered about 5,000 in all. So that's not including the the, the women and the children. If you, You add them in as well, and you're talking about what, double that, triple that? So Jesus takes the loaves, he gives thanks to God, and he dishes out the bread to those who are sat down. He does the same with the fish. And notice, verse 11, they had as much as they wanted. Or or notice verse 12, when they had eaten their fill. In other words, everyone was satisfied. Thousands of people had as much food as they wanted. And, look, there was more left over than there was at the beginning. Twelve baskets full of leftovers are gathered up, verse 13. That's staggering, isn't it? In, in, In fact, of course, for many, it's so staggering that they say it just kind of beggars belief. You can't believe that. And, and attempts are made to kind of explain it away because you know, people just can't do that kind of thing. One, one theory I heard was that what, you know, what had actually happened is that the boy offered to share his packed lunch and, and so shamed the rest of the crowds into sharing their packed lunch uh, as well. And that, that's how it all happened, in which case it turned out to be a nice little story about sharing. Of course, sharing is a good thing to do, isn't it? But, but to reduce this to a, 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 a story about sharing is to completely miss the point. Because the whole point of what Jesus is doing here is that he is miraculously feeding them, thus showing them who he is. Remember, this is taking place at Passover time. They're remembering God's rescue of them. They're remembering that he's the one who miraculously fed them in the desert. They're anticipating the new rescuer to come, the the prophet like Moses, the Moses like Messiah that that God has promised them. And then Jesus does this. He miraculously feeds them. Do you see? It's a sign. It's a sign that tells them who he is. Which might be lost on, on some modern readers, of course. But those who witnessed it, well, they knew exactly what it meant, didn't they? Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. You see, they made the link, didn't they? Uh, Moses had had been God's agent of of rescue and provision in, in the Old Testament. And God had promised them a new Moses, a new rescuer and provider to come. And then Jesus does this. He gives them, effectively, manna from heaven and shows them that he is the one. Well, no wonder, verse 15, they want to try and force him to be king, kind of there and then. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't want that to happen. Find that odd? And so perceiving that this is what they were about to do, verse 15, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And, and the reason that he does that is that although the people have correctly understood who Jesus is, he's the Moses-like Messiah who was promised, they kind of got that. What they didn't know was the kind of Messiah that Jesus was and the kind of rescue that he'd come to bring. See, at this point in their uh, in Israel's history, they were a people, weren't they, under Roman occupation. So they were an oppressed people. They were a dominated people. They were a humiliated people, a people who'd lost their, their national freedom. And, and so the, the messianic expectation at the time, the kind of rescuer they were expecting, was a, was a powerful warrior king who would free them from their Roman oppressors and re-establish them again as a, a powerful nation once again. And, and so what was impressing them about Jesus was his miracles, his, his displays of power. Uh, you can see this in verse 2, look, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Or, or verse 14, uh, when the people saw the sign that he'd done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who'd come into the world. you see the, the, the hint there is that they've misunderstood the nature of Jesus' rescue, haven't they? What they wanted was a political rescuer to help them with their felt need, their immediate material expectations, and so they wanted to force him to be that kind of rescuer for them. But Jesus is not interested in being that kind of a Messiah. That's not what he's come to do. And and so he, he withdraws. And, and actually, he's still there, up in the mountains, by himself, uh, by the time evening comes. And so his disciples, verse 16, they get in a boat, and, and they head back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Um, it, it's dark, uh, the wind has picked up strongly, kind of water is, is rough, and they, they've kind of rowed three or four miles out across the lake. And then they see Jesus, verse 19, walking towards them on the sea, and they're frightened. <laughs> I reckon you would be, don't you? You know, you're kind of, are rowing in a storm uh, on the sea. That's frightening enough. And then this figure comes towards you in the dark and he's walking on the water. I'd be petrified. But Jesus says to them, don't be afraid, it's me. <laughs> and so they, they gladly take him into the boat. And immediately, verse 21, notice that, the boat was at the land to which they were going. So the, the, the Jesus that had withdrawn from those wanting to make him a political king had come to his disciples and given them a further glimpse of who he really was. Psalm 107, back in the Old Testament again, describes God as the one who makes the storm be still, the waves hushed, and brings his people to their desired Home Haven it's just another hint, isn't it that speaks to his disciples of the divinity of Jesus as they see Jesus doing what their scriptures say that God does see so we've seen the signs verses one to twenty one that, that that tell us who Jesus is that, that he is the promised rescuer, he's the Moses like messiah who, who was promised. Uh, And even at this stage, we've seen some little hints, some little clues that the kind of rescue that the crowds are wanting Jesus to bring is not the kind of rescue that he's come to bring. But have a look now at verses 22 to 40, because here's where it gets really interesting as we see the explanation, the, the explanation that tells us the kind of life that Jesus has come to bring, the kind of rescuer that he is. So verse 22, look, it's the following day, And the crowds that had been with Jesus the previous day realized that the disciples had gone back across the lake, but that Jesus hadn't been with them, and yet neither was he still up the mountain. So they did what the disciples had done the night before. They rode across the lake to Capernaum to try and find Jesus. And they do find him, verse 25. And so they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? But Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, look at verse 26, he rebukes them. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And and at first glance, that seems a bit of an odd thing I think for for Jesus to say because back in verse uh, back in verse 14 it seems as though they had understood the sign this is indeed the prophet who'd come into the world they'd seen that Jesus was the the promised rescuer but now in verse 26 Jesus says you're not following me because you saw signs but because you had your stomachs filled so what's going on here what does Jesus mean Well, I think what we need to see is that Jesus is rebuking them, not because they haven't seen anything of who he is, but because they haven't seen properly who he is. They'd seen the signs and concluded that Jesus is the promised rescuer, but they've not seen what the signs really signify, which is the kind of rescuer he is. They wanted a political rescuer. That they had certain things that they wanted Jesus for. But they were all material things. That they were all political things. Here's a guy who can feed our stomachs, so maybe he's the one that can do other things for us too. Like free us from the Romans. Do You see, they didn't see in the sign what they should have seen. Because all they saw was the answer to their material needs. And Jesus exposes that. In verse 27, don't labor for the food that rots. In other words, I'm I'm not here to feed your stomachs or solve your political problems. Don't get so caught up in the merely material and, and immediate needs that you miss the point of what I've come to do. No, verse 27, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. The food that will satisfy you forever. That's what I'm all about, Jesus is saying. But they don't get it, do they? Verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, what what does God want me to do to to earn that food that endures to eternal life? How do I get that? What do I do? And friends, that's what so many people want to do, isn't it? They want to work their way to God. That's what all the world religions have in common, isn't it? They're just different ways by which people are trying to earn their way to God through, through religious works. But that's not what Jesus is about. Because he replies, look, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's, he's just told them, hasn't he, at the end of verse 27, that this eternal food is something that the Son of Man will give you. In other words, it's a gift. You you don't have to earn it. You're given it as you simply believe, as you place your trust in the one that the Father sent, the one who's standing in front of you, (laughs) the Lord Jesus. But their response, I think it shows that they're still only interested in their idea of what kind of rescuer they want. Have a look at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So so they're they're reminding Jesus, aren't they, of the the miraculous feeding of Israel in in the desert. And they're saying, so what are you going to do, Jesus? You know, this is what Moses did for our forefathers, and, and of course that was, that was miracle food, uh, wasn't it? But it still rotted, it didn't last for eternity. So, so are you going to do something more miraculous still, Jesus? What kind of food are, are you going to give us that's going to be more miraculous than that? You know, come on, Jesus. If, if you're the, the, the Moses-like Messiah that the Scriptures are pointing to, give us a sign. To which Jesus replies, look at verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you, do you see what Jesus is offering them? He, he, he's saying, he's saying there is a bread that comes down from heaven. It's the true bread that, if you eat of it, gives life. Indeed, it's the bread, verse 27, that endures to eternal life. It lasts forever. You know, wow! I'll, I'll have some of that bread, please. They say in verse 34, they're they're interested, aren't they? Jesus is speaking a bit cryptically, I think a bit mysteriously, of course. They're maybe not quite sure what he's getting at. Maybe you're not either quite yet, but they're interested. So what about you? Friend, are you interested? you interested in bread like that? Bread from heaven that, if you eat it, will satisfy you forever? Does that sound good? Would you like some of that? Look what Jesus says, look, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Me in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that he is that bread. He is the bread of of life. So, so if the bread of life is a person and that person is Jesus, then how do I eat of that bread so that I can get that life? Well, Jesus says, verse 35, you come to me. You believe in me. In other words, you place your trust in me. And, and whoever does that, whoever comes to Jesus and places their trust in him, Jesus says, end of verse 37, I will never cast out He'll never turn away anyone who comes to him and places their trust in him. Isn't that something? But look, there's there's more. Have a look at verse 40. Do you see see what he's saying? He's saying that on the last day of history as we know it, Jesus will raise up to eternal life everyone who has placed their trust in him. Do, Do you see what that is? That's a promise, a promise of life forever with Christ to everyone who will trust in him. What if you see what's going on here. These people have seen a little something of who Jesus is, that they've seen that he's the He's the Moses-like Messiah, the rescuer that their Old Testament's promised. But they've not seen the kind of rescuer he is or the kind of life that he's come to bring. They flocked to him because they think he might be the political ruler, rescuer, that they need to free them from their Roman occupation or the provider of their material needs. They've got their agenda and they want Jesus to deliver on it for them. But that's not what Jesus has come to do. And so he identifies to them what they should be looking to him for. Not someone to give them manna. Not someone to give them kind of ordinary bread to solve their material and temporal needs. But to give them what the manna was pointing to all along, which is himself, Jesus. The bread of life. The one who's come so that through trusting in him we may have the totally satisfying, eternally lasting life that he's come to bring. So, Frank, can I ask you that question again? What do you want from Jesus this morning? You know, we noted at the beginning, didn't we? We live in a very materialistic world, a world that's not very interested in the eternal, but is massively preoccupied with the material and, and with the here and now. But what Jesus tells us in in this passage is that while that might be our agenda, it's not his agenda. Jesus did not come to give us the material comforts we think we might deserve or the political solutions we think he should. Jesus is concerned about our eternal future. And so the challenge to us this morning, maybe if we're not yet trusting in Jesus for our eternal future, is to ask ourselves, will we accept Jesus on his terms? Will we see that God's agenda is about far more than the here and now? It's about far more than our present material or social or political concerns. Jesus did not come to sort out our present material needs, but our eternal destiny. So will you trust him for your eternal destiny this morning, if you've not done that already? But also, if if we're already Christians this morning, again, we've noted, haven't we, how the world's preoccupation with the material and and the here and now is rubbing off on the church as well. It's showing itself in, I think, really unhealthy, materialistic views of what Jesus has come to do. And again, this passage challenges us as the church, doesn't it? The gospel of the Lord Jesus, friends, is not a social gospel. It's not a health or wealth gospel. It's not a political gospel. Jesus did not come to meet our earthly agendas, but his eternal agenda. And so the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we proclaim to others is not to be a gospel in which Jesus is the answer to our felt needs. Like, like, come to Jesus and have your best life now. No, it's to be a gospel. In which Jesus is the answer to the eternal problem of our sin's consequences. And friends, what an answer he is. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God's agenda, friends, is that we would believe in Jesus and so have satisfaction and life in him forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, our loving Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that in him is life eternal. And, and we pray that each of us here this morning would, would not miss Jesus' invitation to come to him and have that life in him. Um, and, and for many of us who have already done that this morning, Father, we pray that your eternal agenda and not the world around us uh, with its materialistic agenda would be the focus of our agenda as your people, and these things we pray in Jesus' name.